0: to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them. Find out with me, Thane Stener, founder of Center Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth podcast, available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now. Hello, I'm Thane Stenner, host of the BNN Bloomberg Brand Studio Smart Wealth podcast, which runs monthly. This is where I get to interview some pioneers from various industries, uh, backgrounds some amazing stories. These people that I get to interview also have some lessons learned along the way in their profession and, and their journey, and they share tips uh, that are really insightful. So, you know, it's a, it's a real honor, a real pleasure for me to be able to uh, interview the guests that I do. My goal with the Smart Wealth Podcast is to have authentic personal conversations with some amazing people who have already accomplished much in their careers and lifespans, but still have a lot more uh, to accomplish still. My special guest today is Dr. Sherilyn Hale, who's the president and founder of Watermark Philanthropic Council. So Sherilyn, welcome.
1: Thank you, thank you, happy to be here.
0: Well, very happy to have you. And uh, I think we're gonna really try to have a conversation that brings to life Uh, the issues around philanthropy, charity, and generosity. So before we jump in with some questions, I want to give some some background or bio of Sherilyn. She works with some of the leading philanthropic uh, families in Canada and the Caribbean, and various social purpose organizations across Canada uh, as well. She's an advisor with the 21-64 Group, to support the multi-generational family philanthropic uh, uh, process. And as a faculty member of the US-based Ultra High Net Worth Institute. She also holds the Master of Financial Advisor in philanthropy, which is a very specialized uh, designation as you can probably guess. And as a member of the Canadian Association of Gift Planners. As a charter director Sherilyn is also a certified governance advisor and trainer with BoardSource, which is blending the corporate and family governance in her work with foundations and nonprofit boards. She's also an invited speaker, an author, and known for her incredible ability to combine on the ground practical experience with the best of the philanthropic theory and research field today. Sherilyn's award-winning doctoral research on family philanthropy governance in Canada produced a model that today helps families approach their giving in a meaningful way that really works. She recently completed a study exploring affluent philanthropy in the Caribbean, where she grew up and continues to also work. She's a committed volunteer, Sherilyn is a member of the Advisory Council for Canada's first graduate degree program in philanthropy and nonprofit leadership at the Carleton University and as a vice chair of the Toronto Public Library Foundation in support of the world's busiest library system. So Sherilyn, right out of the gate, again, welcome. Thank you for taking the time under your busy schedule to be here. And uh, I guess my first uh, uh, semi-quick question is, I did not know that the Toronto Public Library was basically the busiest library system in the world. Is it?
1: It is. <laughs> it is. Um, you know, I, so I've been on the board of the Library Foundation um, for uh, five years. I'm heading into the, the final year of my last term. I can't tell you how much of an education it has been for me to learn about our library system. Um, I think the most recent data I saw, um, something like 75% or 80% of Torontonians have a library card. That's astounding. It's it's fantastic. And to be involved with the library during the pandemic, um, like library systems across Canada and around the world, libraries, you know, they pivoted. They've responded to meet the needs in the communities, and um, I'm a I'm a big ambassador and fan of of libraries, but the Toronto Library in particular. Oh,
0: fantastic! Well, again, thanks for sharing that tidbit. So, so let's get let's roll up the sleeves and get started here with this conversation because I think uh, there's a lot of really good insights that you can provide to our listenership today. Um, philanthropy can be a very broad term. It can be, you know, something that a lot of people are not uh, super familiar with. But uh, to have the expertise that you have, uh, you know, my job today is to try to pull out some of the nuggets, what you've learned, what you've seen, how people do things well, maybe sometimes how they don't do things quite as well as maybe they should. Uh, So that's really kind of the objective of today's discussion. So first question is, so why does someone or family member or family hire a philanthropic advisor? Like what problems do you help people solve?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, so sometimes it's a problem or a range of of problems or challenges that a family needs uh, some support with. Uh, Other times it's just people who are starting, right? And they want to get started off on the right foot um, so that they can prevent problems down, down the line. Um, I would say the biggest uh, thread, uh, the most consistent thread that runs through most of my work is that uh, the clients are going through some type of change. Um, So in the case of families, for example, it could be, um, you know, they've sold a business or family members are exiting the operational side of the business, or uh, there's a succession plan um, actively underway, or someone has died, someone is married, uh, grandkids are born, um, uh, those are the types of, um, changes where philanthropy tends to rise to the surface in a new way. Um, and that's, that, that's true for families who have been giving for a long time. Uh, I work with some families that they're in their fourth and fifth generations, uh, in their family foundations. Uh, it's just as true for them as with families who are just getting started, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Typically, there are four areas that um, a philanthropic advisor will will help, and these are the areas where, again, families either uh, are having issues or they want to get right as they get started. And the first one is around purposes, getting clear. um, Why are we doing this? What do we want to do? Um, What difference do we want to make in the world? What's our mission going to be? What values will guide this work? The um, second area is mapping the relationships, who's going to be involved um, and in what ways and what criteria might we need to build around that. Um, you know, in some family, you know, if it's a small nuclear family, that can be quite evident for larger, more complex families. Sometimes um, there are not as many seats around a board table, for example, of a foundation as there are members who may want to participate. So how, how do you approach that uh, while still honoring uh, the desire uh, family members may have, but there are also relationships outside the family, right? So your, your charitable partners, content experts in the areas that are of interest to you, um, and some families often will appreciate the, the value of having a non-family member, for example, on their board of directors. So helping families map out those relationships. The third area uh, is organization. How, how do we organize this to get it off the ground? What structures are we going to use? What governance uh, and how are we going to resource it? Uh, And then the fourth area is around implementation. Uh, Actually getting getting donations out the door into the community in a credible way, finding those really great opportunities, doing due diligence and research and evaluation. So those those four clusters are, are often where Uh, families have challenges and where some external help can be really useful um, so that they can give well and they can give in a credible way that really makes a difference.
0: Excellent Uh, so what was your path to working in this space like how did you how did you why did you get into this field so maybe share a little bit of your background story.
1: My first job was as a fundraiser. Um, I actually spent 20 years as a professional fundraiser here in Canada, uh, worked with some fabulous organizations that are, um, you know, making a, a big impact, both here in Canada and outside of Canada. Uh, and then 10 years ago started uh, Watermark. Um, I think for, for me and we all, um, I think we all strive for this in, in our life, um, we want to live lives of purpose, <laughs> purpose and, and meaning. And for me, philanthropy has been that platform. It's been a, a space where, um, you know, I can give the best of what I, what I got, right? My, my inclinations, my, my, the things that uh, get me excited. Uh, philanthropy has been such a, um, a great platform. Uh, for For me to express that, to express who I am and what I care about, and to help others, because um, that's what a purposeful life is, right? Is uh, how we're able to to help others. Um, and then I also I grew up in a home with parents who lived lives of service, and they were they were givers, they were helpers, and um, and my experience is not unlike most people's experience who are involved with with philanthropy. I ask generous people all the time. Where does that come from? Uh, What motivates you? What what has inspired you to to give back, uh, to help? And more often than not, uh, it's linked back to very early experiences in, in their lives, either parents or grandparents or other special people in their lives that modeled generosity, Right. Even even in the absence of wealth, um, that whatever they had, they they gave or they volunteered or they, you know, they they were they were active. Um, And so I often get questions from from families, you know, how how young uh, should we get kids involved? You know, how young is too young? How old is too old? Um, And my answer typically is the younger, the better, because, you know, whether whatever you're doing, either proactively, or just modeling, they're watching, right? And those seeds uh, get planted pretty deeply. So I've experienced that in in my life, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but uh, you know, I've spent my career in the in the philanthropy space, the giving space, um, and it's been it's been a great journey so far. And I'm still young.
0: <laughs> I think correct me if I'm wrong, but where did you grow up? Where were you born?
1: Um, So I was born here in Canada, um, but I spent uh, a number of my formative years in Barbados uh, in the Caribbean. And um, so I often say, uh, you know, I'm a proud Canadian uh, and a citizen, um, but my heart's home is in the Caribbean and uh, I've continued to to spend a lot of time there as much as I can, can get down there. Uh, and do work in the region also with generous people and with uh, charities doing important work.
0: Excellent, thank you. So what are some of the trends that you're seeing or observing today in here in Canada and, and globally from a point of view of philanthropy? Like how how is the industry or the sector shifting and where do you see it growing more and more towards? Let's say over the next three to five years?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say uh, here, particularly here in Canada, but in other parts of the world who may even be a bit more ahead um, than in Canada, I think the rise of family philanthropy um, is uh, is an important trend, certainly for generous families, but also the, the network and the ecosystem of advisors to uh, families of of wealth. I think there's an increasing awareness um, among families that uh, they need to be responsible stewards of, of their wealth, um, and they see philanthropy as as a as an avenue uh, for lots of good things in the community, but also for their family, right? Um, and so I think uh, I think that is a, a critical uh, trend. And in my work with charities and nonprofits. Um, I think the more that they can grow their capacity to work with families, uh, work across generations with, with their donors, um, I think that will position them well because that's a, a relevant trend. Um, secondly, uh, and this is is global, uh, and I and I think you'll you'll it'll resonate with you when I say it, but a, a greater focus on issues of justice, right? So social justice, economic justice, racial justice, climate justice, Um, I think there's so much happening in that space and uh, when it comes to philanthropy and how philanthropists are showing up uh, and where they're directing their charitable donations, how they are partnering uh, with their uh, charitable uh, partners, um, there's a a lot of discussion uh, around that and, and there's a need. Um, for for greater justice and certainly for philanthropists who um, want want to make systemic change, right? So you can can address uh, symptoms of issues or you can get to the root of of issues. Um, So I think the lens of justice is one that uh, is very much on the radar uh, of both major philanthropies uh, globally but also individual uh, philanthropists. Um, and then the, the third trend and some of this is being driven by, by generational change is, I think, a, just a broader lens of what it means to do good, right. Um, so not just, traditional philanthropy or donations that are eligible for a a charitable tax receipt, right? Um, So so younger generations, for example, and we know this, I I observe it in the families that I work with, but we also have good research and data uh, on this. Younger people have a broader view of even what their community is, right? They define community differently. Um, They are they are engaged in philanthropy and traditional grant making, but they're also super interested in uh, social finance, uh, responsible investing, ethical consumerism, um, uh, various forms of activism. uh, it's not popular to talk about crypto these days, it hasn't been doing well, uh, but the rise of, of crypto giving um, internationally has been driven by young people. So, so I think this, this broader lens that we need all the tools uh, that are available to us to do good, um, and philanthropy is an important part of that, but it's not the only game in town. So I think those three, three things are, are prominent among others. Excellent.
0: So some donors, I, I mean, we deal, our, our practice, we deal with, you know, typically families that have net worths of 25 million up to, you know, a couple billion in size, and we see all different types of uh, giving patterns, giving rationale or motives, uh, so it's quite fascinating to see, but um, so some, some donors love the public recognition of making you know, big donations or gifts to hospitals or different causes, while others prefer to give quietly or anonymously or discreetly. So what factors influence these choices, in your opinion, and, and what difference does it make?
1: Yeah, that there's so many dimensions to your question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of it is personality, right? Some people are just more private by nature. Uh, religion and faith play a role in some of those decisions. And uh, some faith traditions, uh, if you get a lot of praise or, or glory uh, for your giving, it takes away some of the spiritual benefit uh, of being generous. Um, uh I, you know, I, my advice to to clients really is to look the case by-case basis, right? Um, and to have really candid conversations with your charitable partners because they may have objectives for particular gifts uh, as well. Um, you know, the, we have some wonderful examples in Canada. Uh, of people from non-white, non-traditional donor uh, communities who've made some really substantial and significant investments in community. Uh, Being able to profile those gifts and name those gifts is quite profound and it's important. Uh, and broadly speaking, I think it's important for all of us in community to see all the generosity around us, right? Uh, when we see it, we better understand how, how giving and philanthropy and generosity makes, makes us better, um, makes our communities stronger, healthier, um, and so forth. So, so there's a lot of value in, in seeing. And sometimes naming a gift, being, being the face of a gift, um, can also highlight a particular issue that may not get the attention um, that it needs; otherwise, it could help attract um, uh, additional funds to that particular cause or the or the organization. I think the flip side of of that um, is uh, a lot of people are increasingly private, uh, and I have found that in in my work with with clients, um, uh, just not wanting to be on. The radar. We live in very complex times, uh, and when you put your name out there attached to anything, you're opening yourself up to scrutiny. Uh, and there's some families that are quite used to living in the public eye, uh, and those who are not. And so I think we have to we have to honor that. Um, I was a fundraiser for for 20 years, and and uh, the ethical commitments that fundraisers make is to honor the wishes of donors. Uh, in that in that regard. Um, and so I think being able to have those candid conversations with your charitable partners, um, and to make a, a decision for each gift, uh, to really think about, you know, what do we want to accomplish? What do our charitable partners, what to accomplish, um, you, you know, can really help you get to, to the right, the right answer.
0: Hmm. So as far as, uh, as far as that goes, do you also see more and more, um, people moving towards donor advised foundations uh, or structures because of the potential for anonymity or uh, discretion in that that sense?
1: Yeah, so donor advised funds, they are the fastest growing charitable vehicle in Canada. The assets held in donor advised funds have doubled in the last few years and uh, expected to uh, increase 10% year over year. Um, And privacy is one of the drivers, one of the big drivers is that they're just really much more available now, (laughs) a lot of uh, financial institutions, wealth management uh, firms uh, have gotten into the space of providing donor advised funds which in Canada were traditionally only available at community foundations, Mm. Um, so they're more available but they are also the only vehicle where you can truly have privacy. Um, uh, private foundations are not private at all, <laughs> right? Uh, any any gifts made, any disbursements have to be reported publicly. Uh, and so for, for some families, that is a, a consideration. Um, and, you know, there are some families, they will have a private foundation, and they will also have a donor-advised fund. Um, uh, and sometimes that could be uh, for particular kinds of charitable donations that they want to keep private for whatever reasons, or it could be uh, as a mechanism for a particular uh, strategy, uh, giving strategy that is distinct from the one that they want to hold within their private foundation. Um, some families will also open the donor advice fund for, for younger family members um, as a way to get, get them started in their own discipline of, of charitable giving and that experience of uh, making recommendations uh, every year as a companion to what they may do with a with a private foundation so sometimes it's one or the other and sometimes it could be both um, but privacy I think is a, is an increasing issue uh, in the charitable sector but you know I think that's a spillover from what's happening in the in the broader um, society and I think we I think we all have to reflect on that yeah. um, you know, and what that means about us and what it means for giving in the future
0: yeah our our group has worked very closely with an organization i know you're familiar with too is you know charitable impact foundation which is where you know donors can set up donor advised funds online within a couple minutes and uh you know it's pretty fascinating to see how families that end up engaging the extension of their families uh it, it creates an interesting different set of questions right or or conversations i would say so it's it's pretty fun to see how families kind of develop and grow in this space and and quite candidly i find, find i know you you would find the same thing it's just it it's it's um it leads to a better understanding of their values and kind of what really motivates them and it's kind of fun to see that in, in different uh, different groups and everybody's different, right? It's not a one size fit all space, right. right? Okay, let's take a quick break there from our interview with Dr. Sherilyn Hale of the Watermark Philanthropic Council. We'll be back here shortly. Want to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them? Find out with me, Thane Stannard, founder of Center Wealth Partners at CanadaCourt Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth Podcast. Available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favourite podcasts. Subscribe now. Well, Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Dr. Sherilyn Hale uh, discussing philanthropic trends and insights from one of Canada's top experts in the space. So uh, welcome back. We're going to jump right back into some uh, questions here with Sherilyn. So, you know, zero doubt in my mind that you create tremendous value uh, in the advice that you provide to the families and entrepreneurs and, and uh, groups that you work with. So you know, in general, how how does a how does a top philanthropic advisor like yourself compensate? It how does a family engage with you? Just to get into the more the nuts and bolts of this, um, if you don't mind sharing.
1: Yeah, how do I get paid? Is that the? Yeah, much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I, I do get paid. It's not it's not volunteer. Um, <laughs> But in truth, don't tell my clients this, but I would probably do it for free if I could afford to. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm very transparent with, with clients about that. It kind of depends on the nature of the engagement. Uh, every engagement is different. Some are, some are very focused, um, you know, very defined, short and sweet. And so that, that could be a, a, an hourly, based on an hourly rate or, or a day rate. Other engagements are are deeper; Uh, they're longer, uh, so that could be a retainer, retainer basis. Um, uh, But again, very transparent with clients about that, and the compensation is also always linked to specific deliverables or outcomes, so that they have a they have a sense of of uh, where we're going and where they'll end up uh, at the end. I think. Um, I think more important for me to clarify is that my compensation is not linked to the amount of charitable assets that they have, or a commission on the gifts that they may make, um, and my fees are never paid by by charities; always the the um, the clients directly. Excellent, excellent.
0: Yeah, so you're very independent in your ability to kind of assess scenarios. But you've also had a very interesting background, right? Being on the fundraising side uh, for 20 years, you've been able to kind of see best practices and and see a lot of scenarios as to how the industry and sector works. So I guess here's an interesting question for you is privacy. Like I, I've been part of uh, 15 nonprofit organizations myself over the years, and you know, whenever an organization is doing a fundraising campaign or whatnot, I mean, maybe just take us through how a nor- like a well-organized, a well-organized campaign, normally structures or strategizes around raising, you know, let's say the the let's say the target is 25 million. I'm just picking a number out of the hat here like how does the organization kind of brainstorm or the of the foundation to go about raising that money and as far as what are some of the best practices as to how they keep information private
1: mm-hmm. okay
0: a loaded uh, one sorry a, loaded one, it, a loaded. loaded one.
1: Yeah. Well, and two very different. So I'll start with the privacy one first, because that's a little more straightforward. So um, every organization, credible organization, should have a privacy policy about how information is, is managed, shared, um, uh, destroyed. Um, there are guidelines uh, around that, uh, including as related to fundraising. And I, I think it's a reasonable question for a donor even to ask. Um, a, a fundraiser, a chief philanthropy officer, whoever they're dealing with, what is their uh, approach to maintaining privacy? Uh, and confidentiality. Um, uh, what's this? Loose lips sinks ships, <laughs> right? Um, I think discretion in fundraising is a really important uh, quality as fundraisers. We're only as good as our as our ethics and our reputation. Um, uh, and that, that leads to trust and confidence in the organizations that that we represent and that we work for. Um, uh, so their guidelines, policy, uh, certainly the sharing of, of donor information is uh, one that would be done on a selected basis uh, and if it's uh, well both for uh, internal purposes but also if you're engaging uh, volunteers, for example, in the fundraising process. Uh, they should be signing a confidentiality agreement uh, relative that, to the information that's shared with them, um, using it only for the purposes um, uh, that it's been shared with. Um, yeah. But it's an ongoing it's an ongoing thing. And the bigger the campaign, uh, and the more external volunteers uh, that are engaged, the more people that touch information, the more uh, attention has to be paid. Uh, to To maintaining that, um, because you know you don't want to damage relationships, um, and you want to you want people to feel comfortable about engaging uh, with you. So that's on the privacy side. On the on the campaign planning side, there there is good methodology for how to do a a major campaign, a major gift campaign. Um, it's tried and true because it it works. It evolves as we go but there are some some fundamentals um, to doing that. And one of them is what we call a planning study or a feasibility study. Um, uh, And typically organizations will engage some outside counsel uh, to support uh, the organization uh, with this step, but it's really to test test your new project, initiative, um, capital development, whatever it is you're raising funds for. You wanna test it among, Uh, those who are already good supporters of your organization, as well as people who could be prospective supporters, right? So you're kind of putting it out there. You want to get their feedback. Um, There could be ways that community feedback can make the project better um, or can help the organization communicate it better uh, in a more persuasive way. Um, And so getting that feedback is, is critically important. Uh, But typically what often happens or should happen in those conversations is also to get a sense of um, if this person was to potentially support this project, what range of gift might they consider? Okay, so it's not we're asking you for a gift today. Um, It's just kind of feeling out, assessing appetite um, and the responses to those questions. And I suspect your listeners, many of them have participated in those types of interviews, so they'll know what I'm talking about. Um, but those, th- that feedback from the, the community of supporters and potential supporters is absolutely essential uh, as organizations assess what is, what is feasible for us to raise for a particular project. So usually what comes back is uh, you know, some gap between what, what we can likely raise among who we know and our initial base of prospective supporters versus what we need to raise. Um, And then we have to go kind of to the next level. Who are the other people uh, in the community that we might want to to speak with, get them engaged in the organization so that they too might uh, be open to this opportunity? Um, Volunteers are critically important in fundraising campaigns, Uh, whether it's for $5 million uh, million or $500 million. uh, Volunteers are really the drivers um, and it's that volunteer network, sometimes they're called a campaign cabinet or a fundraising committee or whatever the name is, uh, but those are the people who carry the responsibility uh, to bring the community in um, to support. And, and in that process, of course, there's some sharing of information so that they can make a, a, credible, a credible approach uh, to someone who's been identified to start building that relationship. Uh, I have both led campaigns, I've consulted on campaigns. Uh, The use of that information um, should always be done in a very respectful uh, manner. Uh, It's not shared all over the place and gossipy this and that. Um, And that really comes down to culture uh, in an organization uh, and values of the organization and how much they value philanthropy, how much they value donors. Um, and those are things that that I think philanthropists should be um, keeping an eye on, um, so that they can make good giving decisions.
0: Excellent. Um, so you know, Canadians today, I think you know, ha- having spent eight years of my life in the U.S. Um, university and then for work, coming back to Canada recently, uh, I find you know. Canadians naturally think a little bit more international or global, you know, in the wealth management industry, Canada's three and a half, four 4% of the global markets. So we're kind of small. So we naturally think bigger and more global, I should say, uh, having lived in the U.S., American culture from what I've seen when it comes to investing is much more U.S. focused, uh, which is suspect, right, uh, roughly 50% of the markets are us equities or fixed income so as this applies to philanthropy um you know i would say that there's a lot of canadians that have that often have global links and connections so are they actually giving internationally today in your eyes are you seeing more of a push there or are you seeing uh them to stay more localized in canada in their
1: approach yeah so part of the answer is it varies for everyone right there are a lot of philanthropists they're they're very focused on their their own community we call that place-based philanthropy um uh, others have a have a national uh, focus or, or mandate in, in their giving and others incorporate international. I think when it comes to philanthropy in Canada, it's kind of a reflection of who we are as a country, right? We have lots of people here with heritage uh, and connections and business and academic ties and uh, family and marriages, right, from, from other parts of the world, Um, and so, you know, we tend to give to what we care about and being able to give, uh, in other parts of the world is really important. I have, I have clients, um, who, you know, they are deeply committed to other parts of the world. Um, and sometimes not because of a personal connection, uh, but because they've been really moved or compelled, uh, because of a particular need, right. Uh, Mm -hmm. in the Canadian context, Um, You know, you you can give anywhere in the world, but if you want a charitable tax receipt or if you're giving through your foundation, um, there there are regulatory hurdles uh, to giving outside the the country. It's not impossible. There are mechanisms uh, to be able to do that, uh, and there is some some work underway uh, to look at the regulatory environment, that will free up Canadians to, to give more generously uh, abroad. Um, I, I find it very interesting um, in my work in the Caribbean, for example, where you know, there's Canadians that give in the Caribbean. There's also people from the Caribbean uh, who give to Canada and the US and the UK um, and to other parts of the world because they're global citizens. right? Um, and I think the, the more we can break down some of those barriers um, so that, uh, you know, generosity can can flow to where there's need. Um, I think that's, that's really important. There's a lot of similarities uh, among uh, philanthropists globally. Uh, they all care about impact. Uh, they all want to make a difference. Um, and so I think being able to uh, engage people and support them to give where they want to give is really important.
0: Excellent. So... Uh- How would would you suggest, um, you know, a family or an entrepreneur is going through a life change or a liquidity event or, you know, uh, maybe a thinking change, maybe they're feeling like they're evolving. So what they wanna do with their wealth, how how would you say is the best way to select a philanthropic advisor, you know, from a professionalism point of view content expertise, methodology, um, background. So how would you answer that question, Cheryl? Yeah.
1: Um, I think it's a really important question because, um, anyone can say they're a philanthropy advisor, right? And so if you don't know, or you don't know what you don't know, <laughs> right, you, you may not get what you think you're getting. Um, so when I think of getting good philanthropic advice, I start by recognizing there are two components to that. Uh, the first side uh, of that I call the technical the technical side, right? So that's your tax, estate, uh, estate planning, insurance, use of insurance uh, vehicles, the legal framework, regulatory considerations. Uh, those, those are really important, and you need to get good advice in those areas. They are also areas where uh, professionals have designations, professional designations. They're regulated professions, um, and, and so you, you need to, to seek those out, right? The second component uh, is what I call the content side of philanthropy, So these are the the four areas that I referenced earlier. So getting clear about purposes, mapping out the relationships, how's that gonna work, who are gonna engage, the organizational uh, components, and then the implementation. So the content side needs to speak to the technical side, Um, but any any technical counsel that I might offer on the content side, I am ethically required to say, uh, however, I am not a professional in that area, and I, I uh, encourage you to seek independent uh, professional advice, right? So, so there yeah. are some...
0: So, account, so accounting, legal, um, tax-related... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: Now, a good advisor, a philanthropy advisor, uh, should be conversant um, in, in those areas and should wor- be able to work well uh, with those other advisors. But that clear scope of work is really, really important. Um, and there may be advice, philanthropy advisors who do have professional designations in one or more of those other areas. Um, but uh, so understanding what you need uh, and what you're being offered is incredibly, uh, incredibly important. Um, from there, so you need a, a philanthropy advisor. Um, I mean, you, you touched on it, you want someone who has some experience, uh, some content knowledge, um, not just uh, theoretical um, uh, knowledge, but even, you know, some connection to the community, right? There's the, there's the science and then there's the art of, of giving, how close are they to the community? Do they really understand how charities work? Um, you know, can they give you good advice uh, on that front uh, the second area is professional development. Have they invested in their own learning in the space? Do they hold the credentials that are available um, in in the philanthropy area? Have they have they continued to invest in their in their learning and in their networking, uh, so that they can bring the the latest and greatest? And they they you know the whole purpose of education is to to know better understand more deeply Um, and so someone who's made those commitments can really bring more value uh, to the table then the third area is methodology how how are you philanthropy advisor going to help us as a family figure this out what approach do you use Um, what kinds of tools do you use um, any advisor, whatever whatever the discipline, if they can't explain to you their methodology for how they will engage you um, to, to take you on, on the journey and where, uh, where you expect to, to be at the end of, of that process, um, they, they may not be bringing the, the level of skill uh, that will that will really, uh, that will really help. Um, and then lastly, I would say even within the philanthropic advising, uh, community it's a pretty small community there's not a lot of us um, uh, but among us we all kind of have our own areas of of particular interest right in areas where we do deeper dives so I think just having having good conversation and and probing um, probing that and doing a bit of research will help families land uh, with someone who can really provide uh, provide value getting clear and um, Helps, helps individuals, couples, families. Uh, I was speaking with, uh, with uh, someone last week and he said, Sherilyn, uh, my wife and I, when we, when we became clear, oh, he said, I now get goosebumps from my giving and I feel a huge weight lifted off my shoulders. It's been hanging around our necks for, for years. Um, And now we feel better. (laughs) We feel better and we are enjoy our giving uh, even more. So and that's the goal. That's the goal to get to give well and to give in a meaningful way.
0: Well said. Very well said on that. On that note, we'll take a quick break uh, from our interview uh, with Dr. Sherilyn Hale of Watermark uh, Philanthropic uh, Council. And we'll be right back shortly. Thank you. Want to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them? Find out with me, Thane Stenner, founder of Center Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the New Smart Wealth podcast, available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Thane Stenner. I'm interviewing Dr. Sherilyn Hale of Watermark Philanthropic Council. We're here today talking or discussing topics of philanthropy, charity, community involvement from a From one of the top uh, experts here in Canada, Uh, so Sherilyn, let's get back into some more questions. So philanthropy and social impact is uh, one of the ten domains of the family wealth uh, aspect. So you know, when it comes to the Ultra Net Worth Institute that you're part of, uh, you're a faculty member there. You know, maybe speak to the point around need for integration.
1: Yeah, so the Ultra High Net Worth Institute is a relatively new um, entity. It's intended to be a a, a think tank, a resource uh, for all those who work in the family wealth space. And they've mapped a a domain, um, a a model of 10 domains um, of all the different disciplines that come into play uh, for families of of wealth and typically where there are advisory functions, um, I was really, really excited to see that philanthropy and social impact was its was its own domain. Uh, but to visually see it in the model was um, was really useful too, because there are ways that philanthropy touches on on the other uh, other areas, such as investment management, such as. Family governance and uh, you know generational succession, um, right? So, so um, I think I think that's another consideration uh, for families as they look at at advisors. Does this person understand the the full scope uh, of of our life? We don't need to know all the detail, um, but to understand the the various moving pieces and to be able to work uh, collaboratively. Uh, with the other uh, advisors, other disciplines, um, so that things aren't aren't standing in in isolation. And I think I think particularly in the case of philanthropy, it just cuts across so many other uh, aspects of family and family life. Uh, certainly for for complex families, business families, um, and you know it's there uh, as 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 a place to bring family together, to accomplish family goals, to connect them to the community. Uh, there's there's so much valuable uh, valuable um, aspects to the philanthropy uh, domain, but not in isolation.
0: Yeah, and, and maybe another way of putting that is it's not just about the financial charitable aspects or philanthropic aspects. It's also about the emotional and the connections and the gelling of the family and making some of these uh, discussions You know, having these discussions and having, you know, having this more as a family purpose, I think, is a pretty powerful uh, thing that can that can evolve quite nicely. So new regulatory tax changes in Canada, which is uh, increasing the disbursement quota, uh, maybe speak to that um, and the timing of that.
1: Yeah, so uh, up until uh, January, so for the last number of years, uh, if you had a foundation, you were required to spend a minimum of 3.5% uh, of the assets on an annual basis on, on your charitable uh, activities. There are some foundations, they, they don't even have to worry about their disbursement quota, they give way more than that, but um, uh, Sadly, there are a lot of foundations that struggle to get to three and a half percent, so that's a, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, government has just made a, a change that takes effect as of January, uh, actually increasing the disbursement quota to five percent uh, uh, of charitable assets on, a, on an annual uh, basis. So, um, so I suspect there will be a lot of, of foundations that um uh, will kind of be caught up in in realizing, gee, we really need to, <laughs> we need to get our, get our house in order. Um, you know, if they've been struggling to get to 3.5, to really get up to 5%, and to do it in a, in a credible way. Um, I think the, the push to five, um, uh, and just for context in the US, it, it has been five for many years. Uh, and there was a campaign to actually push it up to 10%. Um, which has not been successful, but the, there was a, a concerted effort um, by many stakeholder groups in Canada to get it at least to 5%, um, really in response to um, you know, needs in the community, right? That, that uh, for foundations in particular, uh, the, the funders of those foundations got immediate tax relief, um, and yet the, the funds are sitting there. It's more nuanced than that, um, but uh, so getting it to, to 5% uh, was, a, was a, a, a very proactive uh, campaign. Um, and, and it's one that we're seeing in other parts of the world, right? A, a broader criticism of, of philanthropy sitting on money as opposed to getting it out um, into the community. Foundations in Canada hold $9 billion in, in assets, sorry, 90 billion. Uh, in assets, so there's there's a lot of money at play, um, and five percent, um, yeah,
0: yeah, that, that can add up. Um, so research helps to inform you know what we know about the sector, what we do, and how we do it. So, you know, your doctoral research is the only research in Canada on governance and family philanthropy today, and it distills down into a roadmap. Uh, to help families give in a way that really works, so maybe just speak to that research, like why you did it, uh, when you released it, and what you're hoping comes from it.
1: Yeah, um, so I finished. Uh, I finished it just before the pandemic, thank goodness, <laughs> because. I don't think I could have juggled everything. Um, I think everyone had their had their challenges during the the pandemic to juggle everything uh, in their life. Um, that it was a wonderful learning experience for me doing a a doctorate. It was both a personal goal and a, a professional goal. Um, but I was doing my research um, at the same time as I was growing my business, and so there was a really beautiful. Um, uh, connection or loop, right between the the theoretical stuff that I was learning and what I was actually seeing and doing uh, in practice. And I think that's the most beautiful thing about learning, right? Is when you can merge uh, merge those things. Uh, in the in the academic world, I'm I'm viewed as a pracademic, <laughs> so I'm not fully an academic because I'm also a practitioner, um, and I'm quite happy sitting in that in that. Space. I think I think it's a, a useful uh, a useful place to be. Um, so there's very little research in Canada uh, about philanthropy at all. Um, so so to contribute something was important to me. Um, the The particular area of my of my focus was looking at families that do not use a, a corporate giving structure like a foundation for their giving, because I wanted to look at um, how did they organize themselves, how did they govern themselves when they didn't have to do anything, (laughs) right? So with a private foundation, you are incorporated, you must have a board, Um, you have officers, there are certain things that you have to do. Um, And so so the result of my research was actually uh, a model for governance that's kind of agnostic to structure. Um, which at the time I didn't realize how kind of interesting that is, but given the growth in donor advised funds, giving the growth in um, families using multiple structures, you know, I work with clients, they have multiple structures in different jurisdictions around the world. Um, how do you craft a, an approach to governance and family governance relative to philanthropy in that context? And, um, and traditional governance doesn't have a good answer, right? So uh, so the model is really based on, on four components. Uh, governance actions, what what do families actually do, generous families, to, to get organized? What are the principles of engagement that they use to do those actions? Uh, governance enablers, what, what are the things that they need in order to do that? And then differentiators, what are the factors that inform their decisions in each of the other areas. So for me, it was just a a really useful way to kind of organize what Mm -hmm. I was seeing in the world around me um, and mapping it out in a way that may help others, may make sense to others uh, and other families uh, in particular.
0: Mm, Fantastic. Well, uh, kudos to you for taking on that endeavor in a very worthwhile sector. So we're down to the last question, Cheryl. This is always the fun question. Um, if, you, if you wanted to f- finish this interview with two or three insights or suggestions or ideas uh, to inspire people uh, to think more philanthropically, do more philanthropically, become more involved philanthropically, what would be those two or three final inspirational notes?
1: Mm. No pressure at all, Thane. <laughs> uh, um um uh, there there's a, a lovely poem. Um poem statement from Mr. Rogers um, that he wrote and um, and I can't recite the whole thing, but there's the end of it. Um, you know, none of us are extra, right? We're here. We're here for a reason, uh, and I think that it's been such a, a guiding uh, driver uh, for me. But I also see it uh, in the clients that I work with. Uh, and so, so if it's a challenge to your to, to your listeners, right? You're you're not extra. Right, you're here for a reason. You're here for a purpose. Um, have a look, look around, you see what you have to be able to share and to give, um, and and then kind of get to it. It feels good. <laughs> it feels good. Um, so that's one. I think another another one that sometimes comes up in my conversations with uh, with families in particular um, is um, there's no one way there's not one right way that families have to um, structure their giving approach their giving Uh, and sometimes when people think of family philanthropy they think okay everyone has to come to the table we all have to pick priorities and agree to them and then we all have to review and and make decisions um, based on consensus and that's the only way (laughs) right Um, That's only one model, there are lots of ways that families can uh, structure their way in their giving in a way that works for them as a family, every family is different. Uh, One of the findings from from my research was the uh, the role of social capital within families uh, right the degree that they they share. Uh, values, behaviors, uh, and insights, way of under, ways of looking at the world and understanding the world, right? And some families have greater social capital, uh, and they may be used to coming together, having family meetings. Maybe you know, they have a vibrant structure related to business. They're kind of used to that. Uh, and then there are other families who may have less social capital, right? And they're not, they're not used to working in that way. I've worked with families. They've never had a family meeting, right? They've never done anything together or collectively, right? Um, so even coming together to have a meeting, they weren't accustomed to being in a meeting. Right? Um, so there's a whole, a whole continuum. What's most important uh, is if you, if you want to give, come up with a plan or a strategy that suits, that reflects Uh, who you are as an individual or as a family uh, and what you want to accomplish. There's so much need out there. There's so much opportunity. There's some great uh, resources uh, and and good advice um, so that you can really kind of get going um, and and make a difference. And uh, any philanthropist that I have uh, worked with, talked to, and I've spoken with thousands, literally over the years, right? Uh, their philanthropy, their commitment to the community, their volunteerism. It's just, it enriches their lives in ways that they had never anticipated, often more than their professional pursuits. Um, and, uh, and is such a beautiful legacy uh, to, to share with a community. It's not just about if you have kids, um, but if you also have uh, a family, a beautiful legacy for them. So, those are my two pieces of advice. Um, just get out there it feels good
0: (laughs) well thanks Sherilyn so much for sharing your your insights and your time today and I'm sure the listeners will really appreciate um, just your thinking on this very important topic here in Canada and uh, and globally so thank you sincerely for your time today
1: thank you my pleasure
0: so everybody that was Dr. Sherilyn Hale of the Watermark uh, Philanthropic Council uh, group based in Toronto. Uh, so we're again, we're very blessed uh, to have been able to have interviewed her today. And uh, for the, all of you who have been getting used to uh, downloading the Smart Wealth uh, podcasts produced by the BNN Bloomberg Brand Studio team, uh, each month, uh, I hope you listen in, uh, enjoy this uh, this particular interview as I did. And on our next Smart Wealth podcast next month, we'll have Duncan McPherson, who's uh, the CEO and founder of Pareto Systems, who's an author, coach, and well-known speaker uh, in the space of performance coaching for financial advisors uh, and their teams. So that'll be a really insightful uh, interview, given the fact that he Coaches some of the very best uh, teams in North America. So tune in for that one. You won't be disappointed. Bye-bye for now. The comments expressed in this podcast are the results of work done by Stenner Wealth Partners. They may differ from the opinion of Canaccord Genuity Corp. and should not be considered as representative of Canaccord's beliefs, opinions, or recommendations. All views expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. The statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice, and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or general needs of any particular person, organization, or institution. Canaccord is a member of the CIPF.